How y'all doing? Pretty good. Good, good, good. Um, I'm Pastor Steve, and I am so glad to be here uh, to worship with you. Um, could you look to your neighbor and say, I am so glad you're here worshiping with us? All right, very good, very good. All right, if you look at the front of your pews, uh, you'll see a connection card. And the connection card is there so that we can know uh, what's going on in your life and so we can know how we can be praying for you. If you moved or if you haven't given us your address information, contact information, uh, there's a space where you can also fill that out to update your information or to give us uh, your contact information. And in the back, uh, there are ways that you can find out more about what's going on at our church, or if you'd like us to pray for you, uh, you could also write down your prayer request. Uh, just so that you guys know, every Sunday morning at 8.45 a.m., there's a group of us who prays for you, uh, and we pray for you uh, very faithfully. And so just know that we're praying, and if you'd like to also pray for your fellow friends uh, I want to encourage you to come out at 845. It's in the library. We pray in the library um, at 845 every Sunday. Now, uh, I'd like to bring your attention to our announcements. Uh, I'm just going to highlight two. Uh, this coming Wednesday, we have Concert of Prayer. Uh, Pastor Corey, he's been uh, talking about fervent prayer, right? Our, our, our church becoming a house of prayer. And, and so I want to encourage you to come out to that. We're going to be meeting here in the sanctuary at 7 p.m., and it'll be an opportunity for you to pray with your church and just to sit in the presence of God. Uh, we'll be meeting here at 7 p.m. Um, without any agenda, just to come and hear what the Lord wants us uh, to pray for. Uh, secondly, uh, we have Orange Family Time today at 12 p.m. in room 5 and room 27. If you have a child who's in our children's ministry, uh, this is for you. Uh, so I want to encourage you to, uh, to attend this uh, once-a-month meeting. Uh, you'll be able to learn and hear about what your children have been learning this past, um, this past month. All right, with that said, are you guys ready? Are you guys ready for the Word of God? Because <laughs> that's why we're here, right? All right, uh, let me pray for us before we uh, dive in. All right, Lord, God, uh, Jesus, you are so good to us, and Lord, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. Lord, we want to commit this time to you. Lord, we want to commit our years to you. We want to commit our hearts to you. We want to commit our lips to you, our mind, everything unto you. Lord, and we want to surrender all that we are so that your spirit will do with us, Lord, as you wish. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, last week, uh, Pastor Corey, he preached from Jonah 2, uh, focusing on the theme of fervent prayer. Could you guys say fervent prayer? Yeah, and in the sermon, he gave us three motivations that should drive us to prayer, right? Three motivations, and if we remember... It was desperation, it's remembrance, and it's vision. 
Um, as Pastor Corey was preaching last week, and as I sat there, um, my mind, it, 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 it came to uh, another passage in the Old Testament uh, where we see the same type of prayer. Uh, so this morning, uh, I want to focus on Hannah's prayer from 1 Samuel 1 and continue pressing into uh, this topic of fervent prayer. You know, Pastor Corey, he mentioned that we've been praying for you and we've been praying for the direction of this church and as we've been praying, we feel more and more convicted that the Lord is leading us into a season of fervent prayer. A fervent prayer. If you look at this uh, huge banner behind me, uh, it says, Experience God. Right? And I'm pretty sure that this banner, it's erected at the forefront of our sanctuary because that's what we value. That's what we want. Right? We all have this desire within our hearts to experience God, to know Him, to hear Him, and to be intimate with Him. And one sure way of doing that is in prayer. Is in prayer. To experience God, is in, we can do that in prayer. So before I jump into our scripture reading this morning, uh, I want to pose a, a, a simple question for us to consider. And the question is, what does your prayer life look like? When I ask that question, I'm not asking you how many hours do you pray. Or I'm not asking whether, you, whether or not you pray on your knees or how many prayer meetings you attend. But what I'm asking is what sacrifices are you willing to make on a daily basis so that you can experience God in your prayer? Because only in, in experiencing God only in hearing God, only in knowing God will we know God's will for our lives, right? And for the plans that he has for the world around us. So our scripture passage this morning is from 1 Samuel 1. If you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Samuel 1. If you don't, that's fine. It's going to be projected on the screen behind me. It's a really long passage. Please do your best to follow along. Stay alert. If you see your neighbor falling asleep, elbow them in the ribs. All right? All right, is everyone there? 1 Samuel chapter 1. All right, this is the word of God. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. If you have a pencil or a pen, underline, underline that. But Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his, from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Panina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. If you have a pen or pencil, underline that too. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? 
Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. If you have a pen or pencil, underline that too. Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me. And not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Underline that too. No razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah. And the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you. Her husband Elkanah told her, Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with the three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, Lord, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. Underline that. And he worshipped the Lord there. The title of this morning's sermon is Costly Prayer. Costly Prayer. And just to provide a blueprint of where we're going this morning, we'll be looking at the themes of desperation. Church, say desperation. Remembrance, say remembrance. And vision. And these are... Thank you. <laughs> these are the motivations that uh, Pastor Corey, he mentioned to us last week. And our goal today, our goal today this morning is to see the thread of God's sovereignty 
holding together these themes for the purpose of fulfilling his will in the world that we live in. Now, let me take a moment to provide a bit of context uh, surrounding our text. Uh, after the Israelites were delivered from Egyptian captivity, they wandered in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they were eventually led to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. And there they war waged war against neighboring nation and under Joshua's rule, lands were conquered and divided and distributed to the tribes of Israel. And for 320 years, the Israelites, they lived under the rule of God-appointed judges. Under God-appointed judges. There was no king. God was their king. They only had a judge who acted as both a prophet and as a warrior. Now the period of the judges, this 320-year period, is, is, it's considered the dark period of Israel's history. And the book of Judges is essentially an account of their moral, fa of their moral fa failure. How they habitually turned away from the Lord their God and worshipped idols. If you look at the last chapter and the last verse of the book of Judges, this is how the author ends the book with. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they, as they saw fit. So it was in this setting of Israel's dark history and desperate need of a righteous ruler that Hannah is introduced to us in our text. Now Hannah, she was godly. And she was married to this man named Elkanah, who was a faithful Israelite. He was well-respected in his community. She was married to this man who cared deeply for his family and upheld all of his religious commitments. They were a family who went to church weekly, faithfully followed God's laws. They made yearly trips to the tabernacle to worship God. And she was married to this man who was respected and who had great wealth. So from the outside, and a person looking at Hannah from the outside, they would automatically assume that Hannah had it all together and that she had the good life. But the reality was, Hannah was anguished, and she was in grief. And what we read in our passage is an unfolding of Hannah's pain and an utterly desperate confession to God. Twice in verses 5 and 6, the author says, The Lord closed Hannah's womb. The Lord closed Hannah's womb. Hannah, she was married, right? She was married to Elkanah, but she couldn't get pregnant. She was barren. Now, this was hard because in Hannah's social setting, the most important role for a wife was to bear children for her husband. Because a woman's ability to bear children, it had implications that not only affected the family, but it, it affected the, the, the country. Children, they were expected to pass along the family tradition, the family legacy, the family inheritance, and they were also expected to be a source of income to their family. So at an early age, whatever business the family had, the children, they were expected to work and help grow the business. So the idea was, the more children you had, 
the greater your wealth was. So not only did families rely on children, but countries, they also relied on families to produce many children for the interest of national security. Because the greater the population, the greater the threat that they were to their neighbors who were looking for opportunities to invade them. These children were future foot soldiers. So not only did Hannah suffer the distress of society's expectation of what a married woman should provide for her family and for her country, but Hannah, she also suffered the embarrassment of seeing her husband take a second wife, Panina, this local woman, as we'll see. She's crazy. In order to fulfill what she could not. Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> Is it because of the way I said loco? <laughs> All right. In verse 3, we read Elkanah, she traveled every single year, right, with his family to Shiloh to worship God. Every single year, he, he made this travel with his family with all his children and with his two wives. And as a good Jew, we know that he made sacrifices to the Lord. And whenever Elkanah made sacrifices, the family, they would feast, they would celebrate, they would party, and each of the family members, they would receive a portion of meat. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And Panina, this local woman, Right, This crazy woman who saw this affection being given to Hannah, rather than having compassion for her, she ostracizes her. She provokes her. She irritates her. And in verse 7, it says, this went on year after year. But I think it's safe for us to assume that this also went on day after day. Right? Because they lived under the same household. They shared the same husband. They sat at the same dining table, shared meals every day. You see, Panina would irritate her and be that constant reminder that Hannah would never have what she has. Panina was that demeaning voice that told Hannah that she was inadequate and unable to meet society's standard of a good wife. I think we all have our paninas in our lives, don't we? We all have our paninas. You see, our, our cultural norm, it, it, might, it might look different from the ancient Near East, but our society today, it also has cultural ideals. We also have our own cultural ideals. Stand on your own two feet. Right? That's important. Be independent. Make it big. Go to a good college, be smart, get a good job, get married and have two and a half children, own a home in the right neighborhood, send your kids to the best schools, have a certain number of followers on social media, make a name for yourself, be pretty. I know this is tough for women. Be pretty, maintain a certain weight, right? Be strong for men, be strong, show your toughness. And what we realize is that it's impossible for us to meet this standard. Because one will always suffer at the expense of another. 
It's an impossible system of societal standards that we're expected to live by. Isn't that true? And we all have that one person, that one panina that provokes us, that irritates us, that reminds us of our inadequacy every single day. Isn't that true? There are times that I've unfriended, not unfollowed. There's a difference. You can unfriend or unfollow. I've unfriended people on Facebook who I went to seminary with. Because it's hard for me to see, see folks using their ministry platform to create a brand for themselves. And to me, it does me no good to see their social media posts. So on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm confessing right now. I'm judging them, all right? I'm judging them, but I'm also admitting that it does me no good in my soul. So I have to do something about it. Because the initial glance at their post, it tempts me. And you know what it does? It lures me in. It lures me in and it makes me question if I should do the same. If I should also create a website, www.stevenu.com. Right? If I should also post my sermon on social media um, outlets, although no one will probably listen to it ever. Or if I should also tell the world about my speaking engagements I have, which no one would come to. Right? Or if I should also post my ministry successes, successes, whatever that means, even if, I don't even know if ministry success even exists, right? It's true that I can see that those things as God-glorifying acts, but we all know how easy it is to pet our ego using a good cause. Amen? You see, when I see these posts, it's a reminder that I'm not doing enough that I'm not relevant enough, that I'm not meeting the culture's standard of success for a pastor. And I'm, and, and I'm sure this resonates with some of you, right? This resonates with some of you. Every culture, whether in ancient history or modern-day society, what it does is it tries to suck us in to this uh, system of absurd and unrealistic goals that's impossible to meet. And we see that permeating every facet of society, even in the church and in ministry. And what it does is every time we look in the mirror, every time we look at our paycheck, every time we look at our spouse, at our children, at our age, we're provoked with this lie that we're inadequate, that we're not pretty enough that we're not ahead of the game, that we're not fast enough, that we're not strong enough, that we're a disappointment. And that is the condition Hannah finds herself in. There's a system that's aiming to suck Hannah into its cultural expectation of what an ideal woman should provide for her family and for her country. And her pain is aggravated by this local woman, Nina, who, who she has to face every single day, every day. But Hannah's pain, it doesn't end there. Her husband is also the source of her pain, Elkanah. Elkanah is also the source. Although he's a, a well-respected man in his community, he's clueless because he says, Hannah, why are you weeping? 
Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? You see, Elkanah, he, 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 might, have been a, a, he might have had good intentions for his wife. He might have really wanted his wife to be happy, but he was clueless because essentially what he's saying is, Hannah, I married Panina only to give me children. You're the one that I really love, right? So don't place your identity on the culture's expectation, but place your identity on my love for you. Elkanah's urging Hannah to rely on something else that's also faulty, Human love, a spouse's love. So at this point, everyone and things seems to be contributing to Hannah's pain, to her anguish, and to her grief. It's, it's often said that God won't give you more than you can handle. That's a lie. God will give you more than you can handle. 1 Corinthians 10, it says God will not give you more than you can handle in the context of temptation. But when it comes to grief and pain and turmoil and conflict, the truth of it is that there are seasons in life where God does allow more. That God does allow more. He allows more conflict. He allows more stressors more grief and more pain than we can handle or bear. But why? Why does a, God, a good God do that? Before, uh, before we answer that question, let me pause there for a minute. Okay, let's take a breather. Let me pause there for a minute and pose another question for us to consider. What do you do when you're anguished and in grief, when you're in pain, what do you do? Where do you turn to when you're utterly overwhelmed more than you can handle? Perhaps there are some of you who, at an early age, discovered a coping mechanism, right? And that slowly evolved into a compulsive addiction that you struggle with now. And perhaps that's how you numb out your pain. Maybe some of you, you overcompensate in your relationships by people-pleasing, realizing, real, relying on others' affirm, affirmation to numb out the inner pain and insecurity that you carry. Or perhaps you try to control others and exert your self-will so no one can expose the deep wound that exists within. But for to be truthful, we know that these are all faulty methods of dealing with our pain, right? Our coping mechanisms, our compulsive behaviors, our overcompensating, and our attempt to control others, it leads to greater chaos and not the peace that we truly desire. You see, these things are the very things that Hannah could have done to try and deal with her pain, as Eli the priest wrongly assumed, she could have gotten drunk and numbed out her pain. She could have overcompensated her kindness towards Penina and tried to find favor with her. She could have overcompensated her love towards Elkanah and relied on his love for security. 
She could have tried to control the gossip around town by slandering Panina and getting the entire town to rival against her. You see, she could have done all of these things. But what does Hannah do? She prays. Hannah prays. Look at her response to her desperate situation. In verse 9, it says, Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Hannah stood up. Something that we need to notice is that the author mentions Hannah standing up. Because in Hebrew narrative, it's, it's understood that the act of standing up is an act of defiance against the status quo. So the mention of Hannah standing up was the author implicitly drawing out Hannah's piety in that she would not succumb to societals, to the, to the system of societal norms. Hannah standing up was a decision not to let Panina's taunting grieve her any longer. Hannah standing up was her defiance against societal norms. Her standing up was a decision not to let Elkanah's love be the source of her self-worth. Instead, Hannah, she would stand up and in her deep anguish, she would pray to the Lord. She would cry out to the Lord. Hannah's desperate situation was God's way of leading Hannah to prayer. That is why God allows more than we can handle. So that we pray. Because isn't it true that God, he uses the barrenness, the weaknesses of his people to accomplish his divine purpose. Right? Isn't that true? Because just as Hannah was barren, if we remember what's going on in Israel, Israel was also barren. Both Hannah and Israel, they had a need that only God can meet and fulfill. Hannah, in her deep anguish, as she prayed, weeping bitterly, crying, crying her heart out to God, pleading for a son, God turned her request into a prophetic divine vow with eternal implications. In verse 11, Hannah prays, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. You see, she doesn't, she doesn't end her prayer with a request. It's not a maintenance prayer, as Pastor Corey just mentioned. It's a frontline prayer. Her request, it, it, it evolves into a vow, and we know that because she continues in her prayer saying, Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. You see, she's not bargaining with God, hoping her vow will convince God to give her a son. And we know that because she's making a Nazarite vow by declaring no razor ever touch his head. And it was understood that a Nazarite was consecrated to serve under a Levitical priest for the service of the Lord. And Nazarites and priests were not allowed to own land and they were not allowed to earn an income. Their sole responsibility was to uphold the law of God and perform religious duties around the tabernacle. There was absolutely nothing that Hannah would gain from her vow. 
by giving her son to the service of the Lord for all the days of his life, he would never contribute to the family income, to the family business, and be a source of income or an asset. Her son would never inherit the family estate and would never be able to uh, to pass along the legacy and traditions of the family. So Hannah, she wasn't bargaining with God because her vow, with her vow, there was nothing, absolutely nothing for her to gain. Instead, what we see happening here is that as Hannah prays, pressing in to the presence of God to experience the good Lord, drawing near to his heart, God fills her with peace. God fills her with a different desire. God transforms her heart to want a son, not for herself, but for the service of the Lord. You see, Hannah's peace, it comes from her complete surrender to the Lord. Hannah's peace comes from her complete surrender to the Lord. Verse 18, it says, Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. After her prayer, that's what she did. See, Hannah didn't know if her request was going to be answered, but she was filled with this peace because she surrendered, and God in return gave her a new desire. If we remember the context of what's going on here, Israel is in a state of moral depravity. Right, And we know that their priests were corrupt too. If we continue reading in chapter 2, verse 12, it describes Eli the priest, his sons, as scoundrels who had no regard for the Lord. They treated God's offering with contempt, they disrespected the house of God, and they slept with the woman who came in for prayer. And their father, the priest, did absolutely nothing about it. The priest and his sons was a reflection of what Israel was doing to their God. God, he had a divine plan. He had a divine plan to get rid of these corrupt, so-called people of God and replace them with the man whose words would not fall to the ground, which is the prophet Samuel. You see, God, he had a plan to restore Israel. In verse 19, we read that God, he answered Hannah's prayer, right, with the son, and she named him Samuel. And if you read the entire book of 1 Samuel, you'll see how God used Samuel to lead the Israelites and to restore order in this chaotic nation and to appoint David as king, a righteous man after God's own heart, whose descendant would be Jesus Christ. You see the eternal implications? You see, out of Hannah's desperation birthed a prayer of remembrance. Out of Hannah's desperation birthed a prayer of remembrance. Remembering that it is only God who can fulfill her innermost desires. And in her remembrance, God gave her a visionary prayer. In her remembrance, God gave her a vision. You see, out of Hannah's prayer birthed the power of God as demonstrated by Samuel's birth. Right? And out of God's power, not only birthed the son, but a prophet of God to bring God's rule back into a barren nation. Desperation, remembrance, vision. When we're right smack in the middle of our desperation, 
It's hard to imagine God is in it. Right? It's hard to imagine God is in it. You know, for me personally, often the first thing that I want to do is to run to my unhealthy methods of coping. I want to run to my compulsive behavior. But how foolish every time that I do. Because I have a God who knows my pain and knows exactly what to do with it. We have a God, church, we have a God who experiences our desperation with us. And because of that, we can confidently enter into his throne room and remember that God is for us. That God is for us. Surrendering our pain to him just as Hannah did. Trusting that his power will not only transform our circumstances, but more importantly, his resurrection power will give us a new vision and a new desire. During the mid-1900s, um, at the height of Mao Zedong's reign in China, the Bible and Christianity, it was illegal. And Christians, they were being persecuted, they were being killed for their faith. And Mao Zedong, he, he was considered China's savior. And his propaganda red book was the only Bible and way of life. Anything that, anything that challenged Mao Zedong and him as, a red, him as their savior or the red book as a way of life was immediately brought to justice. You guys, we all know this, right? Pastor George Chen he became a Christian at the age of 19 during this time. And God, he infused in Pastor Chen a desire to uh, share the gospel with his own people. Pastor Chen, he became an evangelist and a pastor to three house churches in a remote area near Shanghai. Pastor Chen, he was warned on several occasions to stop, but he didn't stop, so he was imprisoned and sentenced to 18 years of hard labor. Pastor Chen, he described the living conditions as unbearable. And the government, what they did was they put all the Christians in this labor camp, and he saw many of his co-laborers die in torture chambers. Pastor Chen, he confessed that often he wanted to die because it was so unbearable. The living conditions were so unbearable. During his imprisonment, his wife died, and his son was killed. But he didn't learn of the news until peace. As the years passed, as he spent time in prison, Pastor Chen was given an assignment to work in the, the prison's latrine pit. Um, for those of you who were here for my last sermon, there's a theme of latrines right? <laughs> going on here. He was given an assignment to work in the latrine pit. This was equivalent to a death sentence. His first day, he coated his body with resin to protect himself from the disease and bacteria that floated in the cesspool. And the stench of the pit, it was so rancid that prison guards stood several hundred feet away from the pit. And during his second day on the job, Pastor Chen realized that he had something in there that he didn't have for years. 
he was alone. He was in isolation. He had solitude. And as soon as he realized that, he began praying out God audibly. And he began singing songs of hymns and praises. But he did softly at first because he was afraid that the guards might hear him. But eventually he sang louder and louder, realizing that the guards couldn't hear him. And he found himself singing an old hymn he learned when he first converted to Christianity. I'm going to sing. I come to the garden alone While the dew is still on the roses And a voice I hear falling on my ear The Son of God discloses And He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and a joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known when pastor chet When Pastor Chen finished singing the hymn, the rancid smell of the cesspool began going away and he began smelling what he described, what he described as a fragrant aroma of the Rose of Sharon. There in the cesspool, day after day, week after week, year after year, the Spirit transformed the cesspool of death into a beautiful, beautiful garden of life. And light. There in the dark place, God brought life to Pastor Chen's own soul as he prayed and as he sang songs of hymns. You see, after 18 years, Pastor Chen, he was finally released. And he traveled three days and three nights to, a small, to the small village where he had pastored the three small house churches. And he was reunited with, the, with, few, with the few of the people that he had discipled and brought up in the faith many years before. And they were so full of joy when they saw him that they embraced one another with kisses and hugs. And later that evening, they led Pastor Chen to a secluded area, to another secluded area outside of town. And waiting for him were 5,000 Christians who had gathered to welcome him. And he was in utter shock. He asked them, how can this be? When I went to prison, there were only a hundred Christians. Who was your pastor? And they replied, the Holy Spirit was our pastor and teacher. And at that moment, Pastor Chen, he fell to his knees. And he wept uncontrollably realizing that his prayers and songs of hymns had not only created a beautiful garden of life in that cesspool where he was imprisoned, but it brought, brought life and harvest to the people he had ministered to 18 years ago. Church, 
What is the pain that you carry that the Lord wants you to bring to him? Because God not only wants to heal you and redeem you and restore you and hear you and be near to you, but it's through your prayers of desperation that he wants to redeem the world around you. He wants to give you a godly vision, a prophetic vision, a divine vision that will bring revival to his land. So where is your Shiloh? Church, where is the Shiloh that the Lord is leading you to? You know, I'm not suggesting that you jump into a cesspool and you pray, but what sacrifices are you willing to make to experience God in prayer, not just for yourself, but for his kingdom? You know, Pastor Corey, he mentioned last week, and I made the announcement uh, about an hour ago, <laughs> that this coming Wednesday, we're having a concert of prayer. Pastor Corey and I just really want to encourage you to come to come without an agenda, to come to just simply experience God and together as a church to enter into a place, into this posture of fervent prayer. And let's see what the Lord does. Right? Let's see what the Lord does. Let's see how he redeems the cesspool of the pockets of commute that exist, cesspool in pockets of cesspool that exist in our communities. How wonderful that would be, right, to see the Lord restore families and homes and our communities. But it'll happen through our prayer. It'll happen once we start praying. So that I want to encourage you to come this Wednesday to the concert of prayer and let's pray as a church and let's, let's enter into this place with great expectations and see what the Lord does. Bow with me as I pray. Thank <laughs> you.